0: The Remedial Herstory Project is a nonprofit working to get women's history into the primary and secondary history curriculum. To help us meet our goal, we produce media, lesson plans, and so much more. You can check it out on our website, www.remedialherstory.com. Our project is funded through grants and
1: by patrons, potentially like you. Thank you to our patrons, Jeff, Barbara, Christian, Kent. Jamie, Jenna, Nancy, Megan, Leah, Mark, Nicole, Anne, Sarah, Alicia, Katia, Michelle, Jessica, Laura, and
0: Jackie. If you would like to join these wonderful people and become a patron, you can head over to patreon.com and become a supporter of the Remedial Herstory Project. You too can help us reform education and allow women to be seen, heard,
1: and complicated. Hey, Kelsey. Hey, Brooke want to tell everyone what's happening in today's episode. Today, we are going to be talking
0: about literature. Yay! I know, it's so up your alley.
1: Finally. In the West. Mm. The Western Frontier. (laughs) Yep, never mind. Don't know much about that. Oh. (laughs) Well, do your best. (laughs) Yeehaw! (laughs) (laughs) Hello, and welcome to Remedial Her Story, the other 50% the podcast that explores what happened to the women in history class. Now, here's your host, Kelsey Brooke Eckert, and her partner in crime, Brooke Neva Sullivan.
0: In this episode, we are going to ask the question, what is the heroine's journey of women in the West? Cool. And we have Meredith Eliason with us today. And Brooke, I need your help. Okay. What is... A hero's journey slash heroine's journey. This is for literature, people. So we're talking today about heroine's journeys of women in the West.
1: Well, so women in the West, I mean... Some of them ended up getting out there by themselves without men, which was really a cool story. Some of them got like homestead lands. So first time women could own property that they could fight for their own property, which was kind of cool. Yeah. Especially Um, in some of those Western territories because they were like, we just need bodies and blood. Come. (laughs) (laughs) But very scary. You can imagine, you know, this is a lot of land that is currently owned by Native Americans. So not great that you're stepping on it. And then you're going out there and taking it over from. From a lot of people. Well, when I think about the classic hero stories, I think
0: like Harry Potter. I think. Yeah, Luke, like Luke underdog. Skywalker. Uh, I
1: think, I don't know. Yeah, transformative.
0: Yeah, these things. And what, so what's interesting about this topic is that I don't really think about female people. Uh-huh. So it's interesting that she sort of identifies that there's a unique heroine's journey in these Western lit. yeah all I pieces. think about is like
1: Annie get your gun when <laughs> yeah <laughs> like the West yeah. but um for anyone out there watching like Yellowstone there's a prequel coming out to mm. Yellowstone which is kind of cool that's and awesome. it talks all about like how they got to Yellowstone and created land there and and it's gonna be really interesting I don't know how much is based in historical facts so that's cool turn your eyes away if it is not <laughs> so one thing that I really
0: love about Meredith is that she is so interested and dedicated to understanding these classic pieces of literature and understanding how that literature sort of shaped culture and society in the West as it was emerging. And so these are books – Um, and stories that were coming out during that time. And she has a whole bunch of women to tell us about. Mm -hmm. And so for the history teachers, you could certainly incorporate these pieces of literature into your classes for analysis. And for the literature teachers out there, like, hello, (laughs) there's a whole movement towards getting more women into literature. And this (laughs) is your moment. (laughs) Pay attention. Take notes. Where's your pen? (laughs) I got it. Okay. Yeah. So... Meredith is here with us. And why don't we have her introduce herself?
2: Hello, I'm Meredith Eliason, and I am a special collections librarian and archivist at San Francisco State University. I've been here for a long time. Uh, I am interested in San Francisco history, the history of women, folklore, all kinds of things. I'm a designer. I haven't been designing much recently because I've been working on some big projects. Uh, I just had a book on Helen Keller published. It's uh, it's geared towards libraries and it's a very modern approach to her life. It is also a disability history.
0: That's so fascinating. Where can folks find this book?
2: Well, because it's a little bit more expensive than your mass market books, I would recommend they ask their local library to order it. My library has it in ebook form. It's a little bit long to be enjoyed as an ebook, but um, it's available on Amazon, or your regular book vendors.
0: That's amazing. Well, today we're going to talk about um, women in the West, and um, I am so excited to learn from you about this topic as an East Coaster because we don't get a lot of Western history uh, over here. Um, So, would you mind uh, introducing us to this topic? Okay, my
2: basic question is, what is the heroine's journey in the West? And how does marriage fit into that journey? And I'm exploring that through the literature of women. Some of it is in the form of Westerns, some is in the form of essays, some is in the form of maritime stories. And what I found is that there's a literature of oppression, in this material that's fairly consistent. And it reflects two kinds of oppression. There's the oppression of different, which includes race and uh, class. And then there's the oppression of conformity. And that is perhaps the most important and consistent oppression reflected in the Western literature by women. By conformity, I'm talking about Eastern values and how they relate to marriage. The period of the writing is, that I'm talking about today is between 1875 and when women get the vote na- nationally. Women in the West got the vote earlier, and a lot of this literature is addressing suffrage. It's political in the genre of romance, so women are negotiating what they want in a marriage partner, and when you consider marriage at this time, you have to consider the concept of coverture. Coverture is the common law doctrine that asserts no female has a legal identity unless she is the head of a household. A girl is born under her father's control until she marries. Then she is under her husband's control. She cannot make contracts. She cannot get credit. She cannot own her own home. If she brings property to the marriage, it is her husband's after the ceremony. Why would marriage be important in the West or different in the West? There's a geographer named Wilbur Zielinski. He described the doctrine of effective first settlement, which is Colonizing, establishing a self perpetuating society. And this doctrine says that settlers, the first settlers, this is not the first, the indigenous people, the first settlers in a new environment must set rules for their governance. And the first arrivals define and codify land distribution, ownership, and who gets control of governance. And this is the same as on the East Coast. It's the same thinking that made the first settlers, the pilgrims, decide how they would distribute land. So at the bottom of all these stories, there are themes that show up in all the Western movies. It's the the control of land and the control of natural resources. So how do women fit into this? (laughs) Women fit into this because they're necessary for effective settlement. And women face a dilemma when they are thinking about marriage. And quite often, they did not have total control over their choice. And this is on the East Coast. This is in England. You know, these stories are not so different from Jane Austen there's class, there's wealth, there's upward mobility. So what is marriage? Is it a sacrament or is it a contract? And under common law, marriage is a contract. But women are trained, they're immersed in this thinking that it's a sacrament. So women in the 18 in the Victorian era would have been trained to be pure going into marriage. So when a woman enters marriage, she's thinking this is a sacrament, but she's actually entering into a contract where she signs away her rights and her property. Now, think about how on a frontier that's huge and diversely ge- geographic. Think how a man who may not be that well educated could use that to his advantage in effective settlement. It can be a nice little con for an uneducated man to hold to hold a woman that may be better educated under his control. It's a subtext to a lot of these stories. You have the new woman, of the late 19th century which is a college educated woman who has a choice to enter a career path like teaching or editing or sewing or you know anything to have a career or to get married and apply her learning to family life so in a lot of these westerns by women and some by men i think it shows up in the virginian A little bit of a mention of the new woman, but not all the women that came from the West East Coast to the West Coast were new women. A lot of them were trying to find opportunity. So my initial question is, what is the heroine's journey within this context? The Western heroine becomes a catalyst, and actor in a decisive crisis, but she's rarely the victor. She is transformed in the process to create a career or a family or a community where her integrity improves life for the bigger whole. The female heroine discovers her purpose in a kind of romantic vision quest. Western heroine can come from diverse backgrounds. She's rarely supported in her quest, she's seeking something in the West a mate, an identity, an opportunity, a purpose. She's community-minded. And for me, the biggest point is that she can change course if she discovers that she has made incorrect assumptions. This is the heroine to me in the West. And it um, it comes out In the real history, San Francisco was an ineffective settlement to start with. It was an Anglo-American village called Yerba Buena. And an American supercargo, and supercargo is is a sailor that works for a ship owner and, and Manages the merchandise on the ship, settles into San Francisco. He marries a white American woman who is the daughter of a missionary based in in uh, Hawaii, an adopted da- daughter of a, an arms dealer out of Southern California. This sailor is also from Boston. This is uh, this is before the gold rush. This is, it's the early 1840s. So San Francisco is Yerba Buena, it's a, it's a small hamlet. And William D. M. Howard marries Mary Warren. And with that marriage, he is linked into all of the Pacific maritime American dealings. And there's a lot of intrigue. Uh, his business manager is a real, real estate tracker <laughs> from China, and his wife comes to San Francisco with with a, a Chinese companion, female companion. She is the first Chinese woman to come to San Francisco. Already in the Hamlet, there is a Creole. He is. Uh, African American, Danish, and he claims to be an American citizen. And he is the first millionaire in San Francisco based upon land holdings. So you can see there's a multi ethnic dynamic going on in this little town. It's not even a port yet, this little hamlet. And these few men are in this speculative, dynamic. And Mary Warren brings resources and labor. She does not live past the first year of gold discovery. She dies probably in childbirth. So you have these women that are out there. (laughs) They have no infrastructure to rely upon the men around them are vying for land and property and and money and they get it but they get it with the property of people of women and when, once the creole dies his mother is his heir he, he enough no will so she must fought, struggle to get the land she loses it all so you have this this dynamic in, it just shows up in San Francisco, but it's all over, and it's with different resources, and you have different indigenous people. I mean, before the Americans, there were the British with the um, the Hudson Bay Company, and the wife there is Canadian indigenous Canadian. So you have all of these interesting nuances with race and with marriage. The thing with marriage is that in San Francisco is that when the gold rush comes, they they don't have the female infrastructure to support settlement. So the legislature actually passes a law saying a a married woman can operate a business as a sole trader. This is to buffer the family from the craziness of the husband speculation, because you have husbands that are speculating on, on ship cargoes. You know, you have the Shanghaiing, <laughs> all of this stuff. They're speculating on everything and they're losing. The only people that really made money in the gold rush were the humbug merchandise dealers like William D. M. Howard. was a commission merchant and the people who supplied the domestic services to the miners and the people who made the money. The gold miners, and they, they would make quick riches and then they would lose them. You know, you look at this scenario and you see it in the Westerns in different ways. There's cattle, they're mining. Camps where they're fighting over resources. The first woman Western writer writes about the mining camps. And her name is Mary Halleck Foote. And she is an early professional illustrator before she marries an engineer who goes west. Her book, The Lead Horse Claim is an early novel about a mining camp and a romance. And Foote interestingly acknowledges that her heroine in the story is lame. She's a weak heroine. But she says she was writing from a woman's point of view, the protected point of view. And it would have been a romance that did not end with the couple coming together and marrying. But her publisher insisted that love should prevail. So she gives it a happy ending. Let me tell you about a few other women writers. Another woman writer is Helen Hunt Jackson. And in 1881, she wrote a document called A Century of Dishonor, where she chronicled American mistreatment of Native Americans and all of the federal treaties with Native Americans that were broken. She sent it to every member of Congress. And they questioned her evidence. This is like 250 pages of story after story out of story. Undeterred, she pulled a Harriet Beecher Stowe and wrote a novel called Ramona. It's one of the most famous novels about early California out there. And it was made into an early, silent film that's by W. D. Griffith. And the film, you can see it on on uh, YouTube, it's very much to the point. Anyway, she made an emotion an emotional appeal to the public on behalf of Native Americans. Another early uh, Western writer is Emma Ghent Curtis. And she writes about politics. She's into suffrage and she has she, her writing is Colorado based. She wrote two books that are political. The first one is called The Fate of Fools, it's about coveture and a wife's mental health after she discovers her husband has visited prostitutes it's actually a treatise that says basically we should le- if we are going to have prostitution we should legalize it so the prostitutes have protection and she she's bringing up prostitution as an important political in- issue because women married women are dealing with the sexually transmitted diseases like syphilis that their husbands bring into the marriage And that impacts the health of children. In 1888, I think there's a major treatise for medical doctors on syphilis that is dealing primarily with children and the impact of that on them. Curtis delineates the multiple paths for at-risk girls from age 12 to 18 to enter prostitution. And most of these stories start on the East Coast, and the girls end up on the West. They're trying to escape this whatever path into a dangerous uh, lifestyle they've entered. And when you read the stories, it's like, oh, my gosh, that could be happening today. And here again, we have the oppression of difference and the oppression of conformity. Because some of these at risk girls are thrown out of their families because of things that they had, that they were, where they were victims. The second novel by Emma Gent Curtis is also related to politics and race. It's called The Administratrix, and it was published in 1889, a year after her first novel. In this story, a young disadvantaged white woman must confront her own prejudice towards Mexicans and Native Americans to meet her right husband. When he is murdered over water rights and cattle, she's transformed by marriage. And her husband is a proponent of women's rights. He teaches her how to shoot, and he teaches her some of the ethics that good men have. And after his death, she is outraged. She transforms herself into what she feared. She transforms herself into a young Mexican boy who is a, a cowboy. And she uses that disguise. She builds the skill set. She gets a job on the ranch where her where the plot to kill her husband Took place, and she ma- she gets her revenge, but she is killed in the process. It's a real heroine's journey. She's transformed, and in in death, she's reunited with her husband. Carolyn Lockhart is an interesting writer. She tells a story about a young woman who uses her inheritance to go west to meet a cowboy. She has a kind of boring attorney boyfriend in the East. And she thinks she's gonna meet somebody in the West. She immediately gets herself into trouble with a cattleman landowner bully and is saved by his biracial wife. And she ends up getting her cowboy, but he's he's a dullard. He's just not, yeah. Her boyfriend from the east follows her to the west. And when the cowboy proves to be just too irresponsible for her, her East Coast boyfriend comes through and they end up getting married. I have one writer who I am totally intrigued by. She has no dates. She has no in the records. She has no birth date and no death date. She was likely a femme soul, never married. Her name is Frances McElrath. And she writes a number of short stories that are interesting. And she's also the author of The Rustler, which was published the same year as Owen Wister's The Virginian. And this is 1902. Frances writes about, she writes a story called The Girl from Weston's Ranch, which is a short story about a brother and sister. They're operating a farm under coverture. So the brother is in control but it's the sister who's keeping things going. Frances's grandfather was the publishing partner of Horace Greeley. So she's from a politically active Eastern family. The Rustler, which is her only novel, is a radical take on the impact of East Coast businesses controlling Western commodities. And in this case, it's cattle. The Rustler is sympathetic to the Rustlers, whereas Owen Wister's The Virginian, supports the Eastern establishment. He was a Harvard graduate, friend of Teddy Roosevelt. And in that book, there is this, he offers a justification for lynching wrestlers that is totally unacceptable to me. You can read the book if you want and make your own decision. Worcester has a heroine that is not a heroine. She's not somebody that anybody would admire. And his own mother would not write to him for months after, after the book was published. And she said the, his heroine was a, a failure. And he quite frankly had to agree with her. He was condescending in all of her other critiques. But he said, yeah, she's a failure. She's not doesn't have any personality. Another big uh, writer is B.M. Bauer. B.M. is Bertha Muzzy Bauer. She wrote Chip of the Flying You, which is a story about a woman doctor summering in the West where she meets a cowboy who is an artist. And the most interesting aspect for me in this story is how she develops a cowboy that's not a machismo dude. Well, the dudes are actually the East Coast. Uh, (laughs) But uh, in other books, Bauer takes on the liquor industry and addiction. And the film industry. She's very. She, she's a really enjoyable re- writer to read. Gertrude Overton is an Americanist, and she addresses race in the maritime, her maritime short story called "The Race Bond," which was published in 1906 in Argonaut Stories, which means it's a San Francisco story published right around the earthquake. So you have a whole body of literature out of San Francisco that gets lost in the 1906 earthquake and fire but Overton addresses the american ideal with americans who are less than ideal so you have somebody who's who's making points about race with with uh, people who are not heroes one of my favorite writers in this part of the project is Rose Wilder Lane she's the daughter of Laura Ingalls Wilder, all the Little House on the Prairie books. And they're now controversial because of how she treats Native Americans in her stories. But her daughter is considered to be an early anti-racist writer. And she tells a story about a simple girl from the country. And this is California-based. She goes to uh, to Sacramento to get vocational training as a telegraph operator. She gets taken in by a school, and her reputation is ruined. The school is like, it's a scam. So she's dealing with getting a bad reputation. So she goes to San Francisco to be a career girl, and she ends up marrying a fast-talking con artist who abandons her with debt, and she becomes a realtor. So this is kind of coming full circle From Mary Warren, who's the the daughter of a a missionary (laughs) who gets married to kind of a con artist who's dealing with real estate. And anyway, so this story comes out right around the time of the 19th Amendment. And in the story, the heroine goes to a public library, I think in San Francisco, and she does research on the history of marriage as she learns that her husband is isolating her to keep her ignorant of his dubious financial scheme. So this is kind of scattered, but I'm taking you full circle on this, on some very diverse uh, stories and novels related to the West.
1: Hey, Kelsey, I don't think our listeners know about the new upcoming project that we're working on. Which one? The video series. Oh,
0: the video series. That's
1: awesome. (laughs) I know. So I thought we could tell them a little bit about what the product is, how it's funded, and what the purpose is.
0: Well, we are producing a video series, 25 episodes on U.S. history, 25 episodes on world history. And the point of these is to provide teachers who don't know women's history with like a 10-minute video that they could play for their class. So say you're teaching a lesson on the American Revolution. Here's 10 minutes about women in that time period. And it could be a foundation that you can springboard from and do something really cool on those women.
1: And these videos are, yes, you, but they are fully scripted. You can Look at the scripts. They're nicely edited with some really great content. Yep. They're vetted by
0: historians to PhDs, at least in history. So, you know, people smarter than me. <laughs> <laughs> but they're going to be free and they're on YouTube. And they'll be on YouTube. They also have a comedian from Hollywood yes. who is helping to make them funny. So it's, you know, because I'm like kind of boring. Uh,
1: no, very funny. <laughs> But that's awesome. So they're really engaging and they're really cool content. So more to come there. So we yeah. have those coming out. And those are funded through grants.
0: Through grants, through our patrons. Okay. Um so their, you know, contributions to us through Patreon are supporting that project. And then we also have a lot of people that have been donating through Instagram, Facebook. We have a Venmo account. You can find us there.
1: That's awesome. Um,
0: and they're making those contributions. So yeah, it's an amazing thing. And if this is something that you're like, yes, that's what teachers need, any every penny helps because it is a really expensive project. So.
1: It, yeah, totally. And we had a match donor for a while there too, yeah. which is really cool. So definitely, if you're interested in those, yeah. Feel free to donate. You can donate right on our website, Instagram, and Venmo. Yeah, which is awesome. Great work. I'm oh. excited to see the rest of those videos. Oh, Brooke, thanks for your support of the project. Awesome.
0: I'm just curious. When you look at all of these pieces of fiction together, what do you feel like they tell us about life in that we- in the West during that time?
2: Mary Halleck Foot is an illustrator who ends up supporting her family on her writings for magazines and her stories for um, St. Nicholas. She later has published in book form. It's uh, a collection of these short stories that end up being about her life. All of It's been fictionalized, but you know she's writing about her own life. And she dedicate she's just lost one of her daughters and she's near she's not in living in san francisco she's in the south bay i think and she makes sure that the royalties from this book go to children's hospital of san francisco now one of my earlier projects is related to women doctors in san francisco one is charlotte blake brown and her daughter Dr. Adelaide Brown. Dr. Charlotte Blake Brown and women from San Francisco, some of them were doctors, started the Pacific Dispensary Hospital that treated women and children only. It's first of its kind in the West. It was started in the mid 1870s and it became a teaching hospital. Stanford University, UCSF, they are out of that tradition, and Children's Hospital continues uh, for children, but it was initially for women and women of different races. Her daughter, Doctor Adelaide Brown, had a clientele of Chinese women because the husbands of Chinese women did not want white men, white doctors, looking at their, caring for their. Work. So you have you have women that are coming west. They are isolated. And they need to build their own infrastructure. And Foote is like the best example of how a woman writer who dealt with serious... I mean, she was supporting her family because her husband was this dreamer. He fell for some... He was part of some schemes that didn't work. The women were not all, all professional women like Mary Halleck Foote, but they were... Put in positions where they had to take on community responsibilities where there was a lack of infrastructure. They're actually building parallel infrastructures to the men, but they're hampered by this coverture. So in the West, the women's history is really about how do you get good information, reliable information, how do you protect younger girls and women from get, entering bad life paths and believe me there were many ways you know this oppression of conformity where you have to behave in a certain way this feeds into the racism towards other women because you know you you look at that early gold rush legislation the american white wives have to conform but you get women from europe And Mexico and Latin America, who are not, they're not operating under the same societal norms. They can come in and they can establish a a business very effectively. And they did in San Francisco, the financial district, the area that's today, the financial district was developed by sole trader. They were the only ones that would take the risks. And you have women looking at risk aversion. And this you can understand if you're a poker player and you're dealing with bluffs and all this stuff. It's it's very comp it's very different from the East Coast because it's the Wild West. You're dealing with men that have created their own families of men. And in the TV westerns, you get this, you know, with like gun smoke. The only woman that's solid in that frame story is kitty and she's a barkeeper prostitute her character does not get developed until a female writer steps in and does some doctoring she creates a backstory for kitty and when she does that she creates a backstory for matt i don't know i'm not sure if i'm answering your question but uh
0: very solidly thank you (laughs) so Um, I'm wondering where this, these stories are also old. The only one that I knew of the ones you listed was Helen Hunt Jackson's um, piece, just because it's so, you know, monumental and obviously got sent to all of Congress. Um, I am always fascinated by people who love reading classical literature. And this is like before, I wouldn't even say this is classic, right? Because it doesn't make the canon of like American literature. And yet it is, this is early women, Western women's literature. And um, so I'm curious, you've obviously read all of these pieces. Where did your love for this literature come from? Because when you're talking, I can just see the passion and love on your face.
2: (laughs) (laughs) It's these women were writing for, Eastern Presses, Houghton Mifflin, you know, the classic presses. The Administratrix is not published by a careful publisher. There are lots of typos. And when you have women writers, any kind of women, I mean, Jane Austen, any of these, uh, Harriet Beecher Stowe, any of these women, major women writers, It's the publisher that determines the longevity. For The Wrestler, the publisher, I think, was Funk and Wagnall. I mean, Funk and Wagnall, the dictionary and hello. It was advertised in a missionary journal, missionary review or something like that. These are being marketed to women. They're When you look at some of the descriptions on the internet of these stories, and a lot of them are done by men, they're discounted. It's like, this is a formula romance. No, no, no. It's not a formula romance. Each one of these writers has their own agenda, their own um, need in their writing, their own platform. Very individualistic. Some of them I cringe at cuz I read the some of the racist writing in it. I cringe. And and this is another thing when when readers of today look at this literature they're going, "Oh my god. They 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 push it back because they they hear terms like grease or, you know, the n-bomb, you know, these words and they're going, "Wait." And when I I did that and then I looked at it and I thought, "Okay, what is going on here?" These are adjectives, you know, in most cases they're used as adjectives and they're describing women of color and women of color may have more tools to deal with the economics of the West than a white married woman. And then I look at how they describe the actions of men. So look at the adjectives for women, actions of men, and you get a different picture slightly, it's still, some of the language is revolting, but, and it's minimal, you know, within the big, within an, uh, a novel of 300 pages, you might have five words that are objectionable, but it's enough to make it go, hey, this isn't my, this isn't my literature. <laughs> it's like foreign, it's like looking at a foreign language and different values.
0: I read Gail Collins's um, America's Women, and she has a whole chapter that she um, ta- where she talks about early women writers in the 1800s. And she talks about how they're like these squabbling women writing really bad stories because they didn't, you know, necessarily go to college to, you know, study the tenets of literature and the hero's journey and all the things that this is about. Um, and yet, you've um, I- you know these women have obviously stood the test of time because their their documents still exist and you are reading them and maybe revolted by them in parts but you know cherish the Nuggets of information from it that you can glean. Um, so I'm just curious, what you think about that characterization of these early women writers as sort of like squabbling and like very dramatic and whatever? Do you, would you say that that's a fair characterization?
2: No. Okay. And I I say that as somebody who has studied 18th century and 19th century women writers in America. They're always they we are today. We look at these objects, these literary objects, and we're looking through it, looking at them through our lenses. If you look at the first bestsellers in in America, they're different. Emma is the only Jane Austen book that was published during her lifetime in America, and I would not call Emma the typical Jane Austen character. There's something going on there. There's they're they're dealing with women that are a woman that's rebellious a woman that does not conform and in america okay <laughs> this is going into a different direction but in america in the colonial era you never have the wealth that is in england at best we're middle class in the english scheme when you take the literature west it's the same thing they're never as wealthy as they are in the east. The men that are going west by and large have dealt with trauma either on their journey or before. There's a reason why they've come out west. And the women that come west, they have their the whatever infrastructure that was in the east has been removed. They do not have the support. It's the same analogy for the colonials in America and In England, you're going into a situation where you do not have an infrastructure. You must create it yourself. This is a quote from Cornelia Cornelia A. P. Commer, and it's an essay. It's not a Western. It's it's kind of a short story dialogue, which is 18th century (laughs) full time genre. It's from Intensive Living: Reflections on the Well-to-Do Woman's Problem and it was published in Atlantic Monthly in July 1913. And at this point, this is a a Southern California writer. California women at this point have the vote in local and state elections, so they're ahead of the East Coast gals. A group of affluent women in Southern California discuss the soullessness of a, the new home of a friend that has been designed by a male architect and direct and decorated by a male decorator, and they they're talking about how a woman puts her energy into her home, and so so many of these homes were built by the husband and community, and in the wife infuses a few little piece, furnishings and treasures with her spirit. Anyway, it concludes with one of the women saying, Eternity begins beside my hearth, shaped by my will. A woman knows. Think about it. The, 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 the heroine's journey is fraught with danger. I mean, she's dealing with the same birth, childbirth, health challenges. She's dealing with young children. Some of the children have been exposed to the East Coast society. Some of them never know what their grandparents' home is like. You know what I'm saying? They're going into this new world and they have to conform to whatever little funky society they enter. And sometimes it's ruled by this bully that's not been educated. You know, it's this crazy mishmash culture. And she brings to that her her being. That's the heroine's journey. It's what a woman fictional or real brings to her 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 life, her family, her community.
0: So cool. I I I love that. And I love, you know, you're pointing out how important recognizing the unique experiences of women are in all settings, you know, this being a very poignant one, but um, just it's different. And uh, the way that we see the world, the way that we interact with the world, the things that challenge us are, are different than, um, than men. And, and
2: there's no single story. Yeah. No single story. And that's what intrigues me. I mean, I'm maybe 15% into the list of things that I need to read to feel like I've, I'm well enough equipped to do the project that I want to do. And there's so much diversity. Even among white writers, I'm trying to identify some writers of color. There are a few. There's biracial writers. Um, there's one that's by a biracial Chinese English born who lived in Canada and America, and she writes about she writes about it's set, it's set in, China, in San Francisco Chinatown. And she writes about an actress, a Chinese female actress that wants to go home. And she comes across this friend of hers that's just so unhappy because she's Chinese American and her family wants her to marry a Chinese man and go back to China. She doesn't want to do that. So this actress says, oh, let me help you. So the wedding ceremony starts and the bridegroom is happy. He's never seen his bride. But the bride's father, the original bride's father says, hey, wait a minute, <laughs> you're not my daughter. <laughs> and so the bridegroom, is the, the actress says, well, your daughter doesn't want to go back to China. She wants to stay here. And the bridegroom says, you know, I'm OK with this. You want to come back to China with me? You, you're beautiful. You suit me just fine. Let's, let's make this work.
0: That's amazing. So you have the
2: same kind of dynamic going on, ironically, yeah. but it's it's perceived in a different way.
0: <laughs> oh my gosh. Well, thank you so much for sharing this story for me. I feel like I have a bigger appreciation of literature than I did before, and especially this early literature. Um, I've learned a lot, even in the snippets that you gave about some of the people whose names I had heard, um, things I didn't know about them. Is there anything that we haven't touched on yet that you wanted to make sure was included in the podcast before we ended our recording?
2: The big thing that I want people to consider in 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 how they perceive this writing is the difference between the oppression of difference and the oppression of conformity because i think that can help in interpreting the writing of any woman in america and some you know, england i think that would that would too but it's this duality of these different kinds of oppression and how they impact the lives of a gossip, a gossip piece of gossip can destroy a woman. And if a woman is destroyed, then her husband is dis and and the reputation determines credit and all, you know, there are things that are historic, but they're still relevant. It's this thing of having to conform to societal more when they may be out of whack or out of date. Well, thank you so much
0: for your time and your energy today. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. I, you
2: you gave me an excuse to kind of delve in (laughs) (laughs) into something that I hadn't really thought too deeply about myself. Oh,
1: well, thank you. Thanks so much for listening to Remedial Her Story, The Other 50%. Please subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to your podcasts to bring more voices to the conversation. We really appreciate that effort.
2: Until next time.